Amen. You may be seated. And as you're doing so, I do invite you to turn with me in your Bibles once again to Matthew chapter 2. This morning we will be focusing our attention on verses 13 through 18. We've reached the third week in our Advent series where we've seen how God provides. We've noted that God provides a Savior in Jesus Christ. We've noted how God provides a King in Jesus Christ, walking through Matthew's um, birth narrative. And then we've reached the portion of our text this morning where we find that God provides a promise keeper in the presence of Jesus Christ. We've said it before, but it bears repeating all of what the Bible claims hinges upon God being able to keep his promises. It's no accident that a major theme then is in the Bible, establishing and verifying Jesus, God himself, as a promise keeper, showing promises made and then promises fulfilled, promises offered and then promises seen through to conclusion. This is why Matthew specifically is so interested in prophecy. Everything really does come unraveled if we cannot reach the conclusion that God can be trusted. Matthew wants the people, especially his primary audience, uh, the Jewish people, to see Jesus has been promised and by him coming has fulfilled those promises. So specifically today we're going to see that God provides for us those promises in his son. We're going to look at some more prophecy, as we have been doing all along, and we're going to see that in our text. So I invite you to look with me in your word, or you may also see it in your bulletin this morning. I will be reading from Matthew chapter 2, and I will begin in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The grass may wither and the flower may fall. But the word of the Lord will stand forever, and he has promised that it will accomplish everything he has set out for it. Let us once again go to him in prayer and ask his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, as we think of the words of Isaiah and his call to minister to the people of Israel, hearing they will not hear, seeing they will not see, we pray that that not be said of us. We pray through your Holy Spirit's illumination of this text that you would awaken our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we might not simply hear your word but receive it today. 
Father, you promise us that your word has the power to change lives. That it pierces all the way to the soul. And we ask, O Lord, that you would change lives this morning. Each one of us, I pray, would walk away with a greater understanding and appreciation for the beauty of the gospel and what it means that Jesus Christ came into this world. I pray that you would bless this time of teaching in your word. Pray that you would be with your people now and that you would give me guidance as I deliver it. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Fear is an incredibly motivating factor in our lives, isn't it? Fear can make humans do seemingly superhuman tasks. There are stories and reports of people lifting incredibly heavy objects, running or jumping far beyond their ability, surviving in hostile conditions fueled by fear. Fear actually is a gift from God that can cause our senses to react in hyperdrive or intense focus. Um, Adrenaline would be the more technical term. In fact, God's word tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fear can be a very good thing for us. But fear can also lead us to making severely poor decisions. The fear of failure or the fear of man can lead us down the sinful paths of either self-preservation or self-glorification. And we see that here in our text this morning. Herod was afraid. We know this by the previous section, what we read last week, when we were found out that he was troubled by the news of the king of the Jews. Herod wants to preserve his own name and legacy. And in order to do so, he takes drastic steps to rid himself of this potential problem. Sin caused him to turn away from the newborn king instead of turning toward him. But just as Christ's birth had been promised, so too would the persecution and trials that would surround his early years into his adult life. And in our text, we see just how far God is willing to go to keep his word, to keep a promise. We're going to see that by focusing on three aspects of our passage. First, we're going to see how God protects his own son in verses 13 through the first half of 15. Secondly, we will see how Christ suffers on our behalf, even at this earliest age in 16 through 18. And then finally, we will look back at the text as a whole and come to the conclusion that God is a promise-keeping God. And for us, that is a source of great hope and in comfort. But let's begin by considering how God protects His Son at a time where He is in great need of protection. Where we pick up in our story, the Magi have left Joseph is now visited by another angel of the Lord. Now, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You're probably pretty leery at this point. The last time an angel came, um, he was told your wife-to-be is pregnant by the Holy Spirit and you're going to help father the Savior of the world. And so as this angel comes and starts to deliver news, I'm sure Joseph's kind of like, okay, here we go. We're at it again. And this news is not as startling as the first, 
but it does have major implications on his new family. We read these words. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Talk about a whirlwind of a marriage. Joseph would help father the Savior into the world. His wife, a miraculous birth. And then he's told, by the way, the current king wants to murder your child. And now you must flee for your life. You must run with your family. We're going to address in just a moment how, how traumatic this would have been uh, for them and for Jesus and for his upbringing. But even from the outset, I don't want us to skip over how far God is willing to go for the protection of his son. I don't want us to overlook the depths that God is willing to go to see this plan of salvation carried out. We often call this eternal plan the covenant of redemption. This is an agreement between the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past where they agreed to save the to-be human race from their sin, where God the Father promised to ordain everything as it needed to happen, step by step, place by place, person by person, event by event, to lead to Christ coming and living and dying on the cross to rise again. This agreement would include Jesus accepting the mantle as second Adam, accepting that role as Savior for the people, Willingly then committing himself to coming, to being born, to living a human life, to dying and rising again. This would also include the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit agreeing to work in and through sinful men and women to accomplish God's divine purpose. Illuminating the scriptures, revealing the truth of God's word to people throughout history in order to move them, in order to call them to action, in order to have them carry out God's plan precisely, without fault, without failure, without miss. This divine plan of redemption began in eternity past, and we see it played out before us in our text. This is the news that um, people get in the Bible in parts, this is the news that in parts Joseph and Mary have received. Your child is the Savior. He is to be king. He is important. He is the Son of God. So how do they respond? Well, again, you've got to give it to Joseph. He responds in obedience. He rose. He took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Very little is said about Joseph in the biblical narrative, but we know two things about him. We know, one, he loved Mary. He loved her deeply, and he loved her abundantly. He cared for her, even as he was going to have to let her go, and the Lord prevented it. We also know that he trusted God. He trusted God because again and again, God's messenger speaks, and Joseph responds. He responds quickly, he responds definitively, and he responds in accord with what God had commanded of him. And so he takes his family, they flee to Egypt, and they stay there until Herod passes away. You know, God numbers each of our days. It's no coincidence that Herod dies while the Savior's family hides out in a foreign land. God's sovereignty is on full display here. 
He didn't strike Herod dead when Herod declared he sought the life of the children. Instead, he died as God had already preordained it. He did eventually come to his end. The current threat on Jesus would have passed. And it's why the writer in Ecclesiastes speaks again and again on how our life is a mist or a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. May this remind us as we close what for many of us has been one of the most chaotic years in um, our memory. That God does not waste situations or opportunities to first glorify himself and secondly fulfill his divine plan. We may look at situations in our life or in this country and think there's no way any good can come from it. But we can only see it from our perspective. God has eternity in mind and he has a clearer vantage point than we ever will. I'm not saying everything bad that happens in your life is intentionally given to you to create or cause some greater good because sometimes we do face negative consequences due to our sin. That's also been ordained by God. But I am saying we shouldn't be quick to dismiss hard situations because we can't see the end. Because in the case of Jesus, we know that all of the trials at the beginning of his life pointed him ultimately to the cross. I recently heard a story of a man who endured two near-death experiences In fact, in both cases, he had to be airlifted to the hospital in order to save his life. His recovery was grueling and painful. And yet, when asked would he go back and change those events, he said this. God used those moments to draw me closer to himself. He caused me to be a better husband and father. While they were unpleasant, I would not change the man I am now to go back and see that those situations never happened to me. Suffering can be one of God's greatest tools to draw us closer to himself. And we see this even in the life of Jesus. Let's take a moment and look at our next section to see how Christ, even in his earliest days, suffered on our behalf. And when we think about the suffering of Christ, our minds may immediately go to the cross. It may go to his trial. It may go to... The punishment he received leading up to that point of death. Maybe it goes to his disciples abandoning him. Three years of ministry. Pouring into their lives. Speaking into them. And then when he needed them most. When he would have wanted his followers to be closest to him. They scatter. But it would be wrong of us. And those things are times of suffering for Christ, but it would be wrong of us to ignore the trials of Jesus that start at his birth. From his earliest years, he was required to leave his home and live in a foreign place. He would have been away from the religious cultures of his family, customs of his family, excuse me. He would have been away from the support system of relatives and like-minded people to care for him when his parents needed assistance. He would have been isolated in a strange place and constantly bombarded with their heretical views and false teachings and anti-Christian ideals. Many of you understand this personally. Being in the Midwest, I rarely find people that are from the Midwest. It seems like we're all immigrants of other parts of the world or of the United States. 
And we know that it can be difficult to live in a place vastly different than where you're raised. This would have been even more the case in a Jewish culture where family was everything. And religion and family all was tied together, closely knit. People lived in in units. Um, Parents, grandparents, close relatives all would live in clusters together and share their lives with one another. This is something that's a little foreign to us today, um, but this very much would have been the case in Jerusalem. Mary and Joseph were first-time parents living in a foreign land, very young in years, and they were called to do it on their own with neighbors they did not know and without friends. But by God's grace, they did. They made it. God provided for them And even though we don't have much of a record of the early years of Jesus, we do know what happened grew him in stature and knowledge. It's one of the few lines we have about Jesus' young years. He grew in stature and in knowledge of the Lord. And as we think about the life of Jesus, we shift our focus back to what was happening in his home country. And the picture was not good. Herod was enacting a wicked plan. We're told that his fear of a rival drove him to truly sinful action. When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Now let's not minimize the cruelty of this act. Every life is precious, especially the life of a little one. And the level of moral corruption and moral sin it would take to, from the throne, dictate murder. And we call it that. Nothing less than pure murder of these children. The level of sin is is hard to even swallow. And yet, as we read this today, sadly, many of us aren't shocked, are we? It's not hard to swallow because in the culture that we live in, this practice is continued and celebrated. It's, It's lifted up. And performed on a daily basis. In fact, many of us, sadly, we've grown quite accustomed to hearing about it. But this would have been a shocking moment for the people. This would have been a a world-changing event when Herod called for this order and carried it out. And by looking at church history, Herod was actually far worse than we give him credit for. While this is one of the most atrocious things I can think of. This is one of the most sinful acts that I deem possible. Herod didn't stop there. If you research and you look into historians of that time, um, historian Josephus uh, tells us that Herod, after um, he killed uh, the children or just before, he also had an order out to kill all of the Sanhedrin or judges in Israel. Um, We're not sure which took place first or after, but we know that he did so, one, to limit the line of David, to two, rob Israel of its leadership, and three, make sure there was no one left to oppose him. And so we see in one fell swoop, Herod taking the young and the old, taking the, the life to be and the life there was from Israel, robbing it in a time that it was most precious. This is the level of depravity and of sin that was taking place. And as we think of the suffering of Jesus, we have to admit those were his people. He would have heard the stories of that which was happening. He was probably related 
to some of the people that died. Maybe he was able to understand from a young age that that was happening because of his birth. Maybe he carried the weight of that knowledge with him. We don't want to speculate too much into the mind of God where God has not given us a window. But we could see how this would shape the forming of Jesus, don't we? We could see how this would affect his level of empathy. We could see how this would affect how he treated others. And maybe, just maybe, God used those moments in his life to be the Jesus that we read later in the gospel accounts, who lays down his very life for others, who gives even of his cloak to glorify, to lift up those around him. Jesus suffered even from a young age. And as hard as it is to admit, God knew these events would come. God, in fact, ordained them to be. And this draws our attention to this final section where we conclude God is a promise-keeping God. And there is good news. There is good news even in the darkness of this passage. So I invite you again to turn with me and look at it as a whole as we see two specific prophecies that were fulfilled in this great act. Hopefully by now you agree with me that Matthew is um, showing Jesus to be a promise keeper. Um, that Matthew is showing prophecy and prophecy fulfillment. Um, I would hope that uh, by the third Sunday of, of hearing that, um, it has become accustomed to you. But also, as I've said before, I remind us, um, even to the point of Jesus raising himself from the dead, the Jews did not believe that he is or he was who he said he was. After reminder and reminder and reminder and reminder again from himself, from the Lord in God's word. And so I just, I, I say this as, a, as an encouragement um, and, and somewhat of a warning. We have to be careful. We have to be diligent in God's word. We cannot grow weary um, or complacent with it, um, lest we too fail to heed its teaching. Well, in our text, um, as we look at it, we see two specific prophecies, uh, two quotations I want to spend some time on this morning um, that our Matthew gives us, and then we see fulfilled in Jesus. The first uh, comes with Jesus having to flee to Egypt with his family. We read this in verse 14. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed Egypt, or departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. This is going to be from the prophet Hosea in Hosea 11. Broadly speaking, Hosea is reminding Israel, is calling them to remembrance of God bringing them out of Egypt. John Calvin tells us this is the right understanding of that passage when he says this, The words of the prophet should be thus interpreted. When Israel was yet a child, I brought him out of that wretched bondage in which he had been plunged. He was formerly like a dead man, and Egypt served for him a grave. But I drew him out of it as from the womb and brought him into the light of life. Hosea is calling the people to remember how God delivered them from slavery and bondage. I'm like a, a child being brought from the womb, like... Lazarus being brought from the dead. This is how God treated Israel as they were encapsulated in that time of Egyptian bondage. 
Matthew takes that idea and takes it to its ultimate fulfillment when he says, In Christ, Christ is truly your deliverance. Christ is truly the one who will set you free. He releases you from your bondage. He brings you all the way home. For Israel was brought out of Egypt, but yet they were forced to wander. Why? Because left on their own, they still fell into their own sin. They still grumbled and complained against God, and they were caused to wander for 40 years. But when Jesus comes and he says, I release you of your bonds, your bonds are truly released. This reminds us it is no coincidence that Jesus grew up for a time in Egypt. It was intentional. Yes, Herod carried out his own sinful plan. Herod is culpable. He is responsible for his actions. He chose to disobey God out of the sinful desires of his heart. And yet God said, and I ordained it to be, so that my child would be sent to Egypt, so that my child would come out of Egypt, so that this prophecy would be fulfilled. The second prophecy we need to consider in our passage comes in the last couple of verses. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This, of course, being a quotation from the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet as he laments over Israel and over her sin. Jeremiah here is speaking specifically to the death of the tribe of Benjamin through Judah being cut off. Calvin notes that it was not a good omen that at the beginning of Christ's kingship it was marked by bloodshed. That his reign starting also coincides with the loss of life. Many would have looked to this and said he can't be the savior, he can't be the Messiah. How can he come at a time of death? How can his life bring death and yet he's supposed to save people out of that? But if we keep reading in Jeremiah's message, which I believe we're called to do here, we're struck with good news. And I think that we should apply this message to that message of Herod. And while it is very difficult and while it is very sinful, and I I make no apology for that, it is sin. Please hear that. There is good news, even in light of that sin. Jeremiah tells us in the very next verse, Refrain thy voice from weeping, and thine eyes from tears. For thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord. They shall come again from the land of the enemy. There is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that the children shall come again to thine own border. While there is much sadness in what was lost, there shall come again from the land of the enemy, life, new people, hope, resurrection, if you will. And where do we see that language fulfilled? In Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, there is life. In Jesus Christ, there is resurrection. In Jesus Christ, there is promise for that which is lost. He brings with him life and hope. He brings with him a future. He brings with him fulfillment of specific prophecy. And we hope. We hope for those who have been lost. We hope for those who have gone before us. And we pray that God is good and that we shall see him again.
And we trust that he will do that which is in his best interest for his glory and for our good. He's not messed that up yet. He's not failed to keep a promise yet. And hopefully you see in our text that he indeed is a promise keeper. There's nothing else I'd rather discuss with you today than the birth of Jesus Christ. I love this season. I love the focus on family, friends, and loved ones. I love the different narratives through the Advent readings. I love the joy that there is in this time of year. But maybe you find yourself here with us this morning and those don't describe you. Maybe you have gone through loss, hurt, grief, sadness, sorrow. And maybe this time of year brings out those emotions for you. Maybe this is not a time of joy. Maybe when you hear joy to the world, you find yourself going, who in their right mind could sing that song? I'm here to tell you this morning, if that's the case, just as much as Jesus is a source of joy and hope, Jesus is a source of comfort and sorrow and sadness. Jesus is a source of comfort for those who have lost, have lost greatly. Jesus came so that we might have hope, that we might have forgiveness, that we might have life. Not just in times of joy, but in times of sorrow. Not just in times of plenty, but in times of wanting. Jesus took our greatest need, our sin debt, and paid it so that you and I might have life. Is it always going to be easy? No, it's not. It really isn't. If you think that, then we need to have a conversation about true Christianity. But I can tell you this, it's worth it. And I would just encourage you with these words in in closing. Again, I say, we need to remember God has an eternity in mind. God's plan is eternally focused. And far too often, we get very narrow focused. This event, this situation, this potential outcome. And we forget to think, oh God, I don't know what you have in store, but I know you're good. I know you keep your promises, and I know you haven't failed me yet. Help me to see things as you see them. Help me to have eternity in mind. And when we do that, we start to see the bigger picture. And it may not make it easier, but we are comforted because God is a promise-keeping God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is a hard passage. This is a hard text. Suffering is not easy. Fear is something we try to avoid. This is one of those passages we may find ourselves asking, why God? Why was that part of the plan? And, and Lord, I honestly come before you saying, help us. Help us to see the big picture here. Help us to take comfort in you. Help us to rest in Jesus Christ who knows our suffering, who knows our hardship, who knows our difficulty, for he faced each one of them himself. He saw great trials, even in his own birth, even in his youngest years, being implanted in a new land with a new people, sent far away from home. All that took place, Lord, led him into the man he needed to be so that he could fulfill the divine plan of salvation. And of that we are eternally grateful. 
Lord, I pray that we would have joy this season, that we would have hope, that we would look upon you with comfort. But Lord, if this is a season of sadness and difficulty, I pray that all the more you would comfort them, comfort us, remind us of your goodness, remind us of that eternal plan that you have in store. As we look forward to seeing those who have gone before us, Lord, we ask that you would be with us who are here still. We pray all of these things, trusting in you, because we have nowhere else to go, God. We have no one else but you. So we cling to you. It's our light in our life. Amen.